This episode of Talking With Tech is brought to you by Smartbox, assistive technology that inspires you to be who you are. You can find them at thinksmartbox.com. Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. This is Lucas Duber, joined as always by Rachel Madel. How are you? I'm good. I'm in Philly right now. I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, but I lived in Philly for 10 years, so loving it. Springtime here, which is great. And of course, by Mr. Chris Begay. How are you? I'm three hours south of Philly. I feel like I should drive up and just visit you, meet you in person for once. I, I know. Honestly, we're on the same time zone right now, Chris. <laughs> I know, right? How often does that happen? Well, we're, we're also enjoying some, some good spring out here, which is weird for Portland. So now that I said that, it's going to start raining any minute. <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk today. So we have a, a really fantastic interview today um, talking about the concept of AAC agreements. And before we, we even get into what that looks like for each of us, uh, Chris, do you want to explain what that is? Sure. Well, the interview goes into it a little bit, but really quickly, it was just the idea that there are so many of us that work in the field of AAC and we have these little nuanced uh, disagreements like you know, uh, what's important and what's not important and should we focus on this or should we focus on that? And so uh, this, an AAC agreement meeting, you'll hear how it all came out in the interview, is really meant to be like, what are the things we really agree on? If you're meeting with a team of other AAC professionals and you're going to sit down and decide, you know what, these are the things that we all agree on, kind of a universal truths, if you will, that just cover the entire scope of AAC. What would those be? What would they look like? And so the interview is, uh, is two attempts at that. Um, it's the people that uh, ran the, the sessions at different conferences that talk about how they tried to come up with those universal truths, which we called AAC agreements. That being said, so what we did this week is each of us took the time to write down five things that we thought were, uh, were universals. Um, and we haven't talked about them at all, really. So this is going to be interesting. We're going to see where we align. How about uh, Rachel? What's one of yours? It's really interesting because it was a hard practice to just whittle it down to five because I have a lot of ideas on what I think is important. But it was really interesting thinking through the lens of what is universal across every system and every kind of case. We just had an episode about this, but I think modeling, modeling is paramount is what I wrote down. And I think it's such an important thing that we can keep reiterating, you know, every time we have the podcast, because it's so integral to the teaching. I wrote model, 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 and I put without immediate expectation, using least to most prompting. That's how I worded it. Um, but the idea being that, you know, you just don't grab someone's hand and grab them and make them push a button. You know, there's a, a whole prompting or hierarchy that you go along with that helps people. Like first you kind of glance down and just kind of look at it, give them that extended wait time. That might be the first prompt. And the last prompt would be maybe using a physical prompt. So yeah, I think that, that we align. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I had written down was really similar, Chris, to what, what you wrote. Well, I'm Rachel both. I had written down, and I, I might have been colored a little bit because I've been looking at the AAC agreement documents, which I know the interviews will cover, but I had written there also that there was no expectation or judgment around what the response would be to the modeling, mm -hmm. right? That we, we can't assume that the child's immediately going to be recreating what we're doing, and we can't assume that every utterance is going to be grammatically perfect, um, but that we're still excited about modeling. So, And we did just have a fantastic uh, episode about that, too. So if you, if you didn't catch it, um, give it a listen. What about uh, Chris? What's one of yours? Teach core vocabulary, but remember that it's only one piece of the puzzle. I think that's something pretty much universally agreed on, that core vocabulary needs to be the focus of instruction. But it's not all instruction. It's just the focus of most instruction. What do you guys think? Was that on your list? 
core words are essential. That's what it says on my list. So absolutely. I think you make a really good point though, Chris. It's a piece of the puzzle, right? It's, it's kind of a balance, right? We don't only use core words. You know, sometimes those fringe words can be really motivating, but we do know from research how absolutely essential they are in giving children the tools to create sentences and say whatever it is they want to say whenever they want to say it. And, and it, for me, it comes back to this, and it's kind of, it's more philosophical, right? It's a little bit fluffy, but this idea of access to activities of daily living. What I mean by that is that uh, access not just to this sort of like pure functional request refusal sort of system, which obviously is important too, but also uh, access to social communication. Right. And that's something that, you know, it's easy to just focus on helping a child get their needs met, right? Like requesting is, you know, often where we start, but it's definitely not where we should finish. And there's so many uses of language. And I think that our AAC learners absolutely deserve the same opportunities to tell jokes and to protest and to comment and all these things. So, you know, just thinking about universal AAC truths, I feel like focusing on reciprocal interactions is so important to remember and something that we always need to be reminding people that we're training and parents and, you know, everybody needs to kind of have that reminder because it's easy to get stuck in just kind of getting the basic needs met. Well, you put that better than me. Great. Okay. Well, back to you guys. <laughs> so, all right. So we've got three. So we've got modeling. We've got core words with um, with some complexity to it. So core as well as fringe, you know, just making sure we have appropriate vocabulary. We have this idea of the social reciprocity being embedded into the use of the device. What else? I have one. Here's how I worded it. Believe they will. Just mm. simple. Yes. Believe they will. And I, what I mean by that is specifically believe the students will but also those of us acting as communication coaches to try and teach the communication partners how to be better communication partners. I also have to believe they can do it, you know, believe that they'll become better communication partners. So in, in, in all aspects, believe they will. I really love that, Chris. Actually, it's, it's dual, right? It's believing in the children and believing in the, you know, paraprofessionals, caregivers, you name it. Um, I have something similar uh, believe that children are capable of amazing things and they'll rise to the challenge. You know, I think that it starts with that belief and we should never be limiting what we think a child's capable of and um, always reminding ourselves and not only that, but the caregivers and all the people that we're doing training with that children are capable of amazing things and we'll never find out what they're capable of if we don't give them the chance. We're getting back to this concept of presuming competence, right? Not just on the part of the communicator, but also on the part of everyone else that's learning to support them. Um, one way that I've, I've heard it put that I really like is that a, a child is only ever able to communicate the bare minimum of what they want to communicate, you know, that we're only seeing the, the, the tip of that iceberg. And so the, the more that we can facilitate, um, the better. You know, one of the things that, um, that I had down was just, uh, just core raw access to the communication device, that the device should always be accessible, within reach, available in leisure activities and academic, you know, context uh, all throughout the day. Is that at all aligned with anyone else? It's essential, right? If we're going to teach kids how to use AAC, it has to be around. Um, you know, how are we going to model on it if it's not around? Um, so I think all of ours kind of rely on the assumption that the device is there in every, you know, capacity. So one thing that I wrote down, the goal is always SNUG. And SNUG stands for Spontaneous Novel Utterance Generation. It's a really fun acronym, but it's so important because you know, we need to give children the tools to say 
spontaneous thoughts. And I think in the beginning and, and, and with some things, you know, we can use quick fire phrases or social phrases or scripting to kind of teach some functional language, but we really need to create opportunities for children to generate their own utterances. That means putting words together. And that's why core words are so essential. You know, that's why modeling is so essential because we first have to give the building blocks, which is the core words. Um, and then we have to model and show how we combine those to, you know, talk about the experiences that we're having. It's just really important for us as practitioners to impress upon the staff and the parents how important that actually is because I think it's easy to kind of get stuck in, um, you know, having an I want button that says I want instead of building the, you know, it's a two word, it's two words. Um, and sometimes I think we make that leap to I want, we start with nouns and then we make the leap to I want, you know, kids don't understand that that's two different concepts. So instead of saying I want, like maybe they want to say mommy wants or you want. Um, so if we make that leap, we're really not doing the teaching behind it. Um, and sometimes kids can pick it up and it's fine. But other times kids, they don't have the comprehension. Um, so it's just really important to kind of look at those single, um, those single units and how we can put those together spontaneously. Yeah. You know, I, uh, when I talk about snug, I often see people go, yeah, right. And they give examples and it's often examples that are sug. <laughs> where they, they leave out that, no, that novel piece, right? Yeah. And the idea with the novel piece is that we can say whatever we want to say. Like if I, right now I could be like, I'm sitting in my closet and my wife's shoes just fell off the rack because a little gnome fell from the sky. No one has ever heard those words put in that sentence before ever. And that's the novel piece, right? And if I can do that and Lucas can do that and Rachel can do that and anyone else can do that, why wouldn't we assume that someday, given the right tools and the right teaching and amount of time, that our, our students could do that too. Yeah, and kind of going off of that too, that's why literacy is so important and keyboards are so important. And whenever I talk about that, I always uh, give an example of um, this student that I work with who loves uh, making pipe cleaner people. He makes people out of pipe cleaners and he names them, them the most random names um, like Sige and Biff and all these nonsensical names. If he didn't have a keyboard to type to me, I would never have insight into his pipe cleaner people's names. Um, so it's just, you know, in order to have true novel abilities, I mean, we, we, we try our best to program every single word that, you know, a child or an adult could want to say, but that's that's impossible. So we really need the ability to have those keyboards and those literacy skills as a foundation so that it really can be novel, which is so important. Sige and Biff are both great gnome names too. <laughs> <laughs> Combine those. No, I, I actually, I'm glad you said that because we've already said my five, but I, there was the last one I was going to stick in there was literacy that my, the ultimate goal I have of any intervention is to get to, you know, functional, literacy, both receptively and expressively, because that opens up this whole new world of the, the end and snug. So one of mine was um, consider motor planning from the very beginning. So consider or plan for motor planning or motor memory, something like that. Just And so how do we do that? Well, it's just got to be thinking conscientiously when you're choosing a communication system at the very beginning, where are you going with this? Am I knowing that I'm going to someday have to change the motor plan? Uh, if, if so, okay, when and how and why are you making the student change the motor plan? Because maybe they can re relearn the motor plan, but why would you do that to them? So I don't know. It's just being strategic about it is from the, from the planning state at the beginning, you know, almost every single successful communication user I know uses some 
form of motor planning. Yes, absolutely. And kind of a real life example of what that looks like is I, I work with a lot of kids who are pretty young, kind of emergent communicators. And there's this idea that you know, because maybe they have, they don't have the fine motor skills, um, we're going to start with really big buttons. And, you know, in theory, that makes sense, right? It's like, oh, give them eight buttons. It'll be great. They're only, they only, they don't have any words yet, eight buttons. But then what happens is, you know, they learn the motor plans, they're using these words, and then it's like, well, we need more vocabulary. We need more words. And then what do we have to do? We change the grid size. And changing the grid size means changing all the motor plans. So, you know, what I try and do with the assessments that I'm doing is I try to get the largest grid size possible and then mask a lot of the, the words. So, you know, yeah, maybe we have eight words, but we have a, you know, a really big grid with lots of room to add words to it. Um, because, you know, go is going to stay in the same place go is from the start to the very, from the beginning to the very end. Um, and that's just something that's really important to think about that long-term picture because where a child is at now is not where they're going to be in a week, in, you know, six months, in six years. So it's really important to look at the long-term picture. Did you find your list, Rachel? I did. It's here. <laughs> um, okay. So I said, when in doubt, give more words, not less. So this is something that comes up a lot in my practice, and I think I work really closely with ABA therapists, so I think that's probably partially why. Um, you know, this idea that kids don't know these words and we don't want to overwhelm them, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard because we're the gatekeepers of what a child's able to say and have access to say. So whenever you're in doubt, always give more words because, you know, we never want to limit what a child's able to say. And... I do realize that, especially when children are just learning language, yeah, maybe we can't have a hundred, a hundred icons for them to, to scan and learn, but when in doubt, just always err on the side of more. Yeah. What's the least restrictive option? If I'm not sure which one do I pick, well, I'm going to go with the idea that more words is what I should do until the student proves to me that they can't do it. Then, mm -hmm. then I'll it back. Then I'll start with the masking. But if I'm not sure, give them more. And how do you, uh, just working with a, just today, I was working with some uh, communication partners, paraprofessionals doing kind of initial training for them. And I was like, see how uh, this student here, a student I hadn't seen before, um, they had masked a bunch of the words. And I was like, how do you model if all the words are masked, you know, just start mm -hmm. modeling on there. And during very specific uh, strategy sessions, like our therapy sessions, you can sit down and do masking if you need to, but not leave it masked all the time. You know, how else can you model? And that's a really good workaround that I use all the time. Like, listen, ABA, when you're running your programs, you can mask a few of these but it can never stay masked. Like it needs to be available. Um, you know, and, and that's something that I'm, I'm really good at. If I'm, you know, really trying to target a specific word, I'm like, Oh, we're really having a hard time. Let me see if I mask a few of these buttons and maybe we'll have more success. But you know, you better believe that like unmasking as soon as that activity is over, even sometimes in between activities, because you know, we can't, we can't take words away. Right. You know, we can try our best to manage the teaching with, uh, you know, having access to everything all the time, but, you know, we don't know what a child needs to say and wants to say, and we just need to have them have access to all of the words. End of story. Oh, all of the words. You ever seen that meme? With that little yes. <laughs> all of the words. That's what I want to see. <laughs> Teach all the words. I like that. Teach all the words. Yeah. I have one last one. I don't know. Does anyone else have any? 
I'm, I got I'm, my I'm excited. All right. The last one that I have is just two words long. Have fun. This is language is fun. It's about having fun with the kids. You said it ties back to the social one, I think, Lucas. But um, the idea that this is fun, man. School is fun, and being with kids is fun, and it should be fun for you, and it should be fun for them. And when you're having fun, language explodes. It comes out of people. So have fun. Hundred percent. Which ties into a big theme about motivation too. That we Mm -hmm. talk about is like make sure that make sure that there's a reason to use the language, right? You know. um, I grew up as a huge disciple of Calvin and Hobbes. There was this great one that I love that uh, where his, his dad is sitting down with him and he's, he's getting some poor grades in school and he goes, you know, you love reading. Like you, you read a book about dinosaurs every single night. Why, why aren't you doing well in school? And, and Calvin replies, because we don't read about dinosaurs. So that's, yeah. I, if, we, if the student wants to talk about dinosaurs, I'm so happy to talk about dinosaurs. We need that motivation piece because starting a system, we need that buy-in. So we need like, hey, this is that cool thing where you can like talk about things that might even be inappropriate in some people's eyes. I mean, I I work with little boys and they're constantly talking about like farting and like just gross things. And guess what? Like I'm the one helping them do that. Sometimes, you know, teachers are like, whoa. I'm like, listen, this is what little boys talk about. So we just need to give them that same access. If you don't know what Fortnite is, maybe you should go learn what Fortnite oh, yes. is. Because that's what, if you're working in middle schools and high schools, that's what kids are talking about. And that would be super engaging for students. So you got to be kind of clued in on what the, the cultural references are. Do you know what the Infinity Gauntlet is? You should probably go because every kid has gone see that movie and their friends are going to be talking about it. So you want to talk about the Avengers, you know? Whatever is fun and relevant for the student, that's what you should do. And it'll be more fun for you. I also think there's an element of social peer acceptance, right? Like when a a peer hears a kid on a device talking about farting or whatever, all of a sudden they feel more connected. They think it's funny. Everyone's laughing, which is the whole point, right? So I think that there's just, you know, a huge social element when we start allowing kids to sound like other kids. Um, You know, I love using those kind of like fun like silly and stinky and like all these like you know really fun words that we can use to just have fun well with all that said um i think it's probably time to get into the interview so we're going to hear from sean pearson and chris chikoski kelly uh, who joined chris begay to talk about the aac agreements um, which were presentations both in 2016 and 2018 at ataa um so we'll touch on uh some 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 deeper dives into some of these issues you're listening to talking with tech Today's show is sponsored by Smartbox, makers of speech-generating devices carrying their signature AAC software, Grid3, which is one of the most popular worldwide. Grid3 used to only be available for Windows, but now with Grid for iPad, the options for continuity across platforms have really opened up. For thousands of kids and adults around the world, using Grid3 gives them the ability to really participate in all forms of communication with as much control as possible. Grid3 does that by seamlessly incorporating everything from literacy curriculum to text-based grids, all while having access to social media, photos, movies, phone calls, all in one place. All these features of Grid3 evolve with the person while they communicate, participate, and be who they are. From iPad to iGaze, Grid3 is an incredibly comprehensive AAC solution. Go to thinksmartbox.com for a free 60-day download of Grid3. It's one of the great options to consider for every person needing AAC. Well, welcome to Talking With Tech, and today I have two people interviewing two people at once today. Uh, I've got 
Chris Shikoski Kelly. And then we also have Sean Pearson. Guys, um, thank you for both being here. Uh, Chris, where are you from and what do you do? Let's give some people some background. Uh, I'm from Vermont and I work in the Essex Westford School District, which is near Burlington. I am the AT integration specialist for that district. I am not a speech language pathologist. I'm a, I'm a techie with video and, uh, and an aptitude for picking up tech. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And Sean? I'm a speech language pathologist and assistive technology specialist. I uh, work in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, where we just got spring right now. So it's very exciting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I work for an organization, a non-for-profit, not-for-profit organization called Renfrew Educational Services. Uh, where we provide um, assistive technology services for uh, students 5 to 21 years of age, as well as I'm a uh, private practitioner, a lot of different hats, so to speak. Awesome. Well, welcome to you both. What we're here to talk about today, this particular interview, is about something called AAC agreements. And so, Chris, do you want to kind of kick it off, explain how this kind of came about, kind of start the story off? Yeah, well, uh, I guess it was about uh, three years ago when I met you at ATIA uh, in February of 2016, a little over two two years ago, I guess. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, we went to EdCamp. And yeah. uh, I had this idea that we could try to collate some information about uh, agreements and disagreements in the AAC field. I was trying to make sense of where where the field was. Um, there doesn't There don't seem to be you know, declarative best practices. And in talking with you, I really wanted to try to pull together uh, some, uh, some positives and, and, and maybe some things are where, where people needed to, to put some energy and research. Your goal of that particular conference, I think, was to try and figure out AAC. When people go to ATIA, it's the Assistive Technology Industry Association Conference, they often wear different hats and they're looking for different things. Like sometimes I go looking for reading and writing supports and I'm looking for the latest in vision equipment, you know, help people with visual impairments. And it's a, it's a large conference with lots of different focuses. And you could totally go there for AAC as well. And my understanding is that's what you were there for. Like you were laser focused on trying to figure out AAC. Is that correct? Prolo at the t- time was revolutionary, but it was categorical based. Then touch chat was sort of the next big one. And then uh, Words for Life had come out and a whole bunch of other ones. And it, and it was sort of overwhelming to our system on what to pick at that time. Uh, and what's, what are the differences between them? And how should we be implementing them? And, and those were the questions I was arriving with. Yeah, and then you, you, you go to the conference and you go to different sessions, all specifically focused on AAC, and you hear different messages from different people? Is that, am I summing that up right? did hear a lot of different messages from different people, but at the same time, um, there, were, there were different uh, foci. People, some core was just beginning to be a really big focus. The group at uh, UNC Chapel Hill was doing a lot of work on that at that time. And that was something that was new. Um, you know, uh, aided daily language input was, was a big thing that a lot of people were just really starting to explore. And, and a lot of SOPs at that conference had not heard of, mm-hmm. um, it seemed. And so, um, you know, those, when I went to all those different uh, sessions and talked to different people and I kept running into you um, <laughs> and talking to you about them, uh, those were some of the common themes. And as I started to pull those together, uh, it became clear that, that any app we supported had to have support for those uh, functionalities. It had to be able to support core. It had to be able to 
uh, be a full breadth and depth of language and uh, trying to pull all those commonalities together in 50 hours and over four days was um, exciting, uh, exhausting, and uh, culminated in this EdCamp experience. We were able to, to pull together about 20 people and sort of talk about what were some agreements. It seems clear to me without, without an SLP background, but with a lot of experience of implementing AAC with SLPs, there's no one right way to do it. And at the same time, the field doesn't have consensus on even the best ways to do it. And you and I went back and forth about some disagreements we had. I remember those conversations fondly because it's one of those things where you grow from going like, well, I think it's this way, but no, but that doesn't make sense because what if we twisted it this way? You had this idea to put the AAC agreements a session up at EdCamp. I know there were some big names in the field sitting there with us. I know Carol Zangari was there from Practical AAC, Caroline Musselwhite, Linda Burkhart, and then um, there were others too, trying to really wordsmith what would we all agree on. And so uh, that was the 2016 version. I got the, the go-ahead to go back and I reached out to you and said, all right, great. Let's, uh, let's revisit this at EdCamp again. And I got the bad news that it was your turn not to go. Yes, yes, I said, but I know, I know a guy. I know a That's guy right. can do this. And so, Sean, do you want to talk about how you got involved? Sure. Uh, I got a call from you, I think, uh, maybe the month before or six weeks before ATIA. I think you knew I was going and just uh, informing me about the, the agreements, which I think I had seen online. I think you tweeted them or I got a hold. I had seen them before. Um, and you just asked me, kind of gave me the rundown of what happened, how the process was in the past. And you asked me if I wanted to kind of facilitate a session at EdCamp with Chris because obviously because you couldn't go. To tell me how it went because I wasn't there so. Yeah so it was I think from the way Chris described it it was very similar. Um, I think we had 12 to 15 people. There were probably a handful of people who or a few people who were at the previous one the one two years ago. Um, so we did that and what we did was we brought up all the agreements uh, from the 2016 one and shared them with people in case they haven't, in case they didn't see them. And then started our first step was to kind of go over everything, go over all these agreements and see if A, anything changed for people, or B, if people disagreed with what they were reading with the previous agreements. Mm -hmm. uh, and so maybe now, I don't know if you guys think this or not, but I'm wondering is, should we break out what those agreements are and talk about them a little bit? The first one I'm seeing is, the communication system should allow for multiple pragmatic functions. That, uh -huh. that seems makes makes sense to me. There's like uh, so often I think we get stuck on requesting, right? And uh, and what else can can we have people do? Comment, request, uh, all the other pragmatic functions. In the, the previous uh, set, we said allow for all pragmatic functions. So this became a compromise with this group. I'm not sure. Which way is better? This is a little, you know, some of the, it turns out, and we'll see that as we go through these, some of the ones in 2016 were a bit strident. Uh, they were a little more uh, inflexible. And this allows for uh, a wider range of systems. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I, I mean, I wonder, just talking about it for a second, what pragmatic function would you not want it to allow? It'd be a good, dis I wish I was there, because it'd be <laughs> a discussion to have, like, should it be all or should it be multiple? I could see that being a, a point of contention with people. But I, the idea is you shouldn't have just one, I think mm -hmm. is the big takeaway, right? 
And I think this one, this one went around the table quite a bit. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, um, yeah. in terms of the discussion. And it's something I'm sure we'll get to after. But just the wording of things, because the way I kind of took away from it, it's a slight change from the way it was before. Um, but this one, this one definitely went around the table quite a bit. Let's look at the next one. So the next one says, everyone is a multimodal communicator. A communication system should include multiple modalities. And so, I, by, you know, by saying it should include the multiple modalities, they're saying, you know, it should have text, it should have audio, but it doesn't necessarily have to all the time, you know, and so they were just making it a little wider, a little broader. Cool, yeah. I, contrasting it with one from 2016, there's one, and unless I'm missing it in the 2018 version, there's one in 2016 that says there should always be a light tech option as part of an AAC system. And I'm wondering, is that what this new one morphed into, or is that something? That no, that, that one's still there. I don't think oh, we yeah. have, we didn't get to that one. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, no, we did get to that one, as we I recall, Sean, right? Yeah. yeah. And that, that one did not have much uh, disagreement on it. Um, uh, everyone saw the validity of having something that could be laminated at the pool or when the battery dies or when the machine gets dropped. And so that was an important agreement that uh, was pretty consistent. I know that's a conversation we've been having around these parts is about, I like how it's worded in that it's uh, an option and that, um, or like said, multiple modalities in the other one, meaning um, so often it's been called a backup system, you know, but I don't think mm -hmm. of the backup system anymore. I think of them as alternative systems, just like Chris, you were just nodding. Like, yeah, I understand. Like, yeah, don't, that nodding is not your backup system. It's just an alternative system for you to say, yeah, I, I'm understanding you, right? Sean's nodding now too. Yeah. <laughs> when you're helping a student swim in the pool and you want them to answer a question or make a choice about what their free time thing is, do you really want the iPad in the pool? Right, right. So, right. Is that a backup if you're using a laminated set of sheets with some choices on it? Well, I don't know. But, to your point, you know, that's, that may not be a multimodal uh, uh, system at that time, you know? Well, I'm thinking that all of those things are part of the, the grand mm -hmm. system, you know? So right. not like the, the iPad is the system, but that the communication system of the person, an iPad is one part of it, and that laminated board is one part. Well, and, th and that was a conversation where um, we, we actually struggled a bit uh, this February at ATIA in 2018 because uh, really uh, we had a lot, of, a lot of conversations about that. Is the app the system or is the system not? So we sort of revisited that. I think if I were to do this in the future, I would sort of try to set out some definitions of what, um, you know, what an AAC system is or what a communication system is. And that's language that we sort of parsed a lot uh, with this group of 15 uh, at ATIA uh, this winter. That's, and that's something that I find, always find very tricky is that there doesn't necessarily seem to be one definition that we could go to. We can't go to Merriam-Webster and be like, ooh, communication system. And then here's the definition of it. Uh, so I think, I think that's a reason why we kind of struggled with that. And everyone was kind of going over and over and we'll get to a couple that I think should be in any definition of communication system. But uh, I think that was, yeah, that was an issue. I'm assuming ASHA or whoever does have something because I know our, our uh, national governing body, they do have an official statement on you know, this is what a communication system or an AC system, I think their their thing is. Um, I'm assuming ASHA has something similar. Um, mm -hmm. 
but then in, for instance, in Canada, sometimes you have the national body, but then you have the provincial body. So the equivalent of the state. So they might say something that might not be consistent with what someone else is saying. I think we had 10 different ASHA members probably in that group and they were not agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe it needs to be, uh, uh, defined. I think it's a great idea, but it's certainly not uh, codified at this time. All right, let's look at the next one. It says a uh, single switch or sequence switch device is appropriate to use as a component of a multimodal communication system. So that seems appropriate to me. Yeah, right. Like, however, you access, however, the person needs to access the device, they access the device, whether that's a switch or it's eye gaze, if it's direct select, whatever, right? I think the, the main point, which may have been wordsmithed out of this a little bit, was it's really not a, gr a great robust system if it can't be controlled with a single switch. We're trying to be positive, but I think the takeaway from this one briefly is if you can't access it with a switch or sequence switches or multiple switches, it's not a great system. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You are knowingly, if you're developing, if you're a developer and you're knowingly leaving out that population, then... Uh, it's not a great system because you wouldn't even consider it for that for a population. If it was only direct select. Well, and, and for people like me who are on the periphery, it's not a full-time, uh, uh, you know, uh, focus. When I'm parsing or looking at different systems, you know, in some ways I need to look at what is the, what is above the bar of acceptable. And if it doesn't have this, then it's really not a system that I'm going to want to adopt in my, in, in my uh, school system. Well, let's see. We have some other ones. Modeling should be used to facilitate growth and communication. I mean, that's that's a big new new to this whole industry. It feels like point in the last five to ten years, and not everyone uh, is on board with that. And when we have in Vermont, we call them paraeducators or paraprofessionals, but in other places, they might call them the educational assistants. We have it, in Vermont. That's been a goal is to try to get uh, the the some of the paraprofessionals to model more with AAC and they don't understand intrinsically that it might take them 200 times to model that before the student will do it. Yeah. Or 2000. Yeah. yeah I think or that's, a, I don't think that's an exaggeration. No. Um, and so I think that is, that is a crucial building block. And, uh, and luckily I think that is an agreement that uh, is uh, fairly widespread in the industry at this time. Yeah. Sean, you're nodding. You agree? Yeah. 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 I agree too. What I find here is when you, uh, is that, um, modeling, it's easy enough to wrap your brain around, right? Yeah. You just got to model on the device. What I find, so why aren't more people doing it? Um, I think it's because it's a skill, you know, like it's, it takes, you have to teach it to somebody and it takes time to learn it. And so you have to coach them through how to model appropriately, um, or just model in general, you know, because it's so, uh, something that doesn't come natural to somebody, you know? Well, not only that, um, there's a, as you said, there's a steep learning curve. And in our system in Vermont, there are no funds to pay for training hardly, which mm -hmm. is a huge problem for support staff. Um, if the model I've been approaching now, and I think you and I talked about it a couple of years ago, my special educator takes over the class of 15 kids, you know, three with intensive special needs. And I go train six support staff for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I got it. No problem. Which is revolutionary to me. Uh, genius, genius guy to say that. And then we can do some training because there's no funds. There are no funds to pay for people to stay after school for training. It's a volunteer. Yeah. So who's going to do that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a big issue. Do you have the same issue in Canada, Sean? 
you know, it's, it's finding that the resources, which are largely financial, but also time for everyone to, to be able to do that. Uh, and really, you know, making it clear that this is how we learn language, that this is why we have to model. It's the same thing when we, you know, as a speech therapist, um, when we're teaching late talkers how to talk, you know, we're, we're doing modeling. That's what we do. Um, and, you know, just teaching people that that's, that's what it is. Um, and being aware that it's, it's, it's not always that easy. I have, a, I have a little baby daughter now and I can't tell you how many times I say to her, say this or say that or say this or say that, which as a speech therapist, I never, I would never tell a parent to do, right? <laughs> I would never, I would never tell, um, uh, a communication partner of an AAC user keep saying, press this, press that, press that, press that, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's for whatever reason, it's just, it's not intuitive to us. Um, so it does involve a lot of teaching and it is a learned skill. Okay, let's look at the next one that, that I wanted to jump to. Accept any mode of communication is valid as long as your communication partner understands what it means. Don't require individuals to repeat themselves in another modality. Do model the response in the modality you are trying to teach. I think the main point is, you know, a lot of the sessions uh, that people are talking about are getting on sort of uh, uh, best practices. So some of the sessions I saw in 2016 were about SLPs who were not doing this. Mm -hmm. And people who were presenting were showing some of the SLPs they were trying to teach and they were sort of showing the errors. And some of them were, oh, I, I see you chose the red bear. Now say red bear. Now press red bear on your talker. You know, and they were like, what this is, you know, we already got red bear. Wouldn't you be frustrated if someone made you say something three times, three different ways? Um, and then, so all you need to do is, and what we added, I think this time, Sean, was uh, in case you want to add on, um, do model the response in the modality we were trying to teach. Mm -hmm. So if somebody um, signs Red Bear because they want to read that book that's called Red Bear, then you can look on the device or whatever part of the system you're using and say, oh, you want that book? Great. Just as you would when you're trying to teach someone to speak. I think that may have been one of the, the bigger um, learning moments from this year's uh, AAC agreement session at EdCamp. Okay, so I was just noticing that there are other ones that might fall, other agreements here that might fall in the realm of modeling. So they're kind of all associated with modeling. So let me read this one. Modeling should allow for growth in the individual's communication. Uh, the other one is modeling needed language stimulation all day, every day is desired in AAC with no requirement of a response. And so that one was from 2016. I don't think that did it. They did it a little bit. Um, we change it to is desired. Okay. It was a little more, uh, again, strident or firm language before, and it was softened a little bit here. Uh, yeah, I get it. It's a little more forgiving if you, like you're, you're trying to do all day, every day, but if you can't, I mean, I think the big thing here, though, is the no requirement of a response, right? Where I think a lot of people might have been like, oh, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Right. No, I think we were talking before, you know, to understand that it might take you a year to get four responses built in, which means that the team is modeling that hundreds of times with no expectation of a response for months on end. And I think that is a game changer for some people in the field. Yeah, it's hard to hear. And I think one of the things that speech therapists jump to is, uh, well, how do I collect data on that? 
because you're supposed to be collecting data on what the student's doing, and you're just telling me to, to model. It's like, well, there's, you still collect data on what the student's doing. The data collection shouldn't drive that, it shouldn't negate this point. Well, and you can also keep data on how many times you've modeled it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Said modeled, you know, and, and in conjunction with the other point, modeling should allow for growth in the individual communication. You know, what level of communication are they at? And are you modeling the, ne the next level up? You know, we started to have some conversation about that, I think, Sean, this year, and uh, we yeah. ran out of time. Yeah. As I think we did in 2016, which was sort of interesting that I think, uh, as I recall, that happened both times, you know, and, and really starting to dig into that conversation about, yeah, we're going to model at the level you're at. And we're going to model at the level above where you're at. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, it's similar to reading. We're going to, we're going to have you read texts at your pace and we're going to have you try to read texts at the class, your age level. You know what I mean? As anything that that's uh, behind like that, you want exposure to the next level up. Yeah. I think of it like a staircase, you know, so yeah. run a stair and you stand on that stair or one stair above them. You know what that means language wise is if they're at, if they're saying two words, then you say two words and occasionally three words. Right? Yeah. So and I, I go back, go back to what I mentioned before. It's that's, you know, how we teach late talkers and how we, you know, teach parents and family members how to model on that. Same thing. Am I missing any other ones that have to do with modeling in general? Um, I don't think so. But one thing I, I definitely want to bring up that I find interesting that Chris mentioned earlier is that, you know, five, six, seven years ago, you know, modeling wasn't in the conversation. And now you look at this list, we have what, four, five, six different things that are all related to modeling. I find that fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a big thing that has come along with the advent of these uh, AAC devices that are becoming more and more ubiquitous, you know. Well, and, and I think to your, uh, I agree with Sean, I mean, to see that change in, in the system in the, you know, 12 to 15 years I've been in the AT field, it's huge. I mean, I remember where if it wasn't a Dynavox, it pretty much wasn't an AAC. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And then, and you needed like an extra backpack to carry it around. Um, and then the, the whole introduction of iPads, uh, which I think changed the world. Um, I, I want to share a story Samuel Sennett told when I first went to ATIA. He said, he said, assume that there are 300 million people in the U S he said, I know there are more. He said, um, the last, uh, survey said that one and a half to two percent of people could use some type of augmentative alternative communication in the u.s let's assume that's one percent he said all right so that's that, that's on the low side that's a million people in the u.s alone could use aac he said last year twelve thousand devices were approved by the federal government mm -hmm. for funding he said there's room he said i know all these companies are afraid of a 500 hundred dollar app or whatever <laughs> But we're, we still have 800,000 people we're not reaching because of cost. Mm -hmm. This is this is a good thing, and I, I will never forget that story. So uh, that is a fantastic story, and it's so true. Like, I think there's still a huge need out there, and you're just talking about the U.S., let alone globally, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, all right, some of the other agreements. Now, there's probably people driving their car right now going, when are they going to say it? When are they going to talk about what vocabulary should be taught. <laughs> Everyone rest assured we're getting to it. It says right down here, fringe vocabulary should know. What does it say? <laughs> <laughs> fringe uh, vocabulary only. 
Yes. Um, but it says core vocabulary should be taught. That's the agreement. But I wonder if in the softening realm, if we would not expand that to all vocabulary should be taught, uh, core vocabulary should be taught primarily or something like that. You know, I wonder if there, if there's any issues with that. Um, I don't, I think in the interest of time, I think we got to this one towards the end, uh, Chris. This is much like you're saying, this is one I would have had an issue with um, because I would like to see a little bit more of what you mentioned of all vocabulary, vocabulary should be taught that we shouldn't forget fringe vocabulary, even if we're focusing on core vocabulary. Um, and that's something I would have definitely brought to the broad discussion about. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, I feel like in, in some ways, maybe the, the industry has gone uh, a little too far towards core. And, and I can accept that point. At the same time, I saw the group from UNC Chapel Hill and Karen Erickson present this year at ATIA, and they're down to 36 core words, and they've refined them, and they all have to have multiple meanings, and they've parsed them. And as a starting point, I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think most people would agree with that, right? Yeah. The question I think that everyone has, and I don't think we're going to solve it today, but is how do you take the core vocabulary and the fringe vocabulary and put it in a blender and mix it and so that someone comes out in the back end knowing it all, you know? Mm -hmm. what's, what's the magical formula for all of that, you know? Well, I think the, the point to elaborate on what you're saying is that um, that project, which uh, I think is amazing, I, I've seen them present at both the last two ATIAs, and I will look for them again next year. Mm -hmm. um, they're not saying you're never going to get to fringe. They're saying if you start with fringe, you're not going to get as far as fast as if you start with core. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a slightly more subtle, nuanced point that is valuable, right? Here's your bang for your buck with kids that have yeah. three words. And totally. I think that's, that's just logical and is really smart and unfortunately is not as widespread um, as we want it to be yet. Um. Uh, one of the issues that I take with it, not, not issues like disagreement, but one of the points I make along those same lines is you only have so many minutes in the day. And so mm -hmm. with all of these words you, to, to teach, where do you want to focus your time? And so that's one of the, the reasons I geared towards core vocabulary is because of the, uh, how much you could use it in that time. All right. For sure. Let's move on. There's another one here that's um, – they kind of there's a couple here that kind of go together. I think uh, one is called the, the AAC system should never be removed for disciplinary reasons. Same lines. There's one that says um, the student should have access to their communication system even while engaging in academic or leisure activities. Right, and I, I think when sorry, there is one more. The AAC system the AAC system should always be immediately accessible to the user. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, I think those are all variations on a theme, as you point out. I think yeah. we, we had definitely started with, um, again, in 2016, the first two. It should be immediately accessible, um, and that it should be never removed for disciplinary reasons. There were times that I think people, and I even see it today with other expensive equipment, people are like, well, should the student carry that because it's so much money, you know? And I was like, well, that's how they access the curriculum, so let's <laughs> One or <laughs> right right it's the same sort of thing so you know we don't want to remove things for disciplinary reasons everyone seemed to agree on both uh sessions um but uh i think again uh, engaging in academic or leisure activities i think that there are 
the point was that a lot of times people are like, oh, well, they're not in class now, so they don't need it. Okay, so you're never going to talk when you're not in class? Right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing people don't stop and think about. It's so funny because it's you, you have to put yourself in that in those shoes and say, this system is that person's voice. They should always have it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so a cu- couple quick things here then. So let's say a student is skimming on a device. They keep pressing, you know, uh, one, 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 or they flip over and they go over to the keyboard and they're just telling like Q W E R T Y Q W E R T Y. The reaction for a lot of people would be to take the device away. So what, just like we were saying before, well, what do you do if the student is having a disciplinary? Right. I mean, I've got a couple ideas off the top of my head. I mean, the first thing you can do is change the, and most of the apps, the, the robust apps, you can change the setting so that it won't say the word again within a certain time. Mm-hmm. So you can slow that down. So uh, the last one I looked at, I can't remember if it was Touch Chat or Prolo, but uh, I think you could go above a second. Mm-hmm. So that's going to change the effect that they're getting. The second thing is if, you, if they're going to the keyboard and you don't want them to go to the keyboard, on an iPad you put them in guided access. And mm-hmm. for people who aren't familiar, guided access is Apple's nice way of saying we're locking you into this app and blocking certain buttons from you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I use that with uh, a lot of our students who just automatically go to different things. What's interesting that I've found over the years is the students that are going to things that we don't want them in at that time are doing it intentionally. Yes, right? <laughs> they like the photos because they like people. Yeah, yeah. They don't <laughs> photos. Well, right? So, so then, then it becomes about what are we, and we, we haven't really got this in the agreements, but what is the motivation? If the student is motivated, they can do it. So then in our teaching, you know, and a PRC actually has a, a Prinky Romic actually has a lot of nice things about this. I, I'm sure other people do, but um, in, in really just talking about the teaching moments is finding the motivating things to tie in language with students so that they won't just stim. And so I think that's the real educational point. Instead of blocking and corralling, you need to encourage that motivation and channel it towards increased communication. Something, something to kind of jump on what Chris said is what I always tell the teachers and professionals, paraprofessionals that I work with is it's, it's, their, it's their voice. So the same way you would treat another, another student who's talking during class and who might be, you know, scripting or being repetitive in class, you treat that, that child, that user the same way. So if you're telling them, if you would tell another kid, shh, quiet voice or, you know, indoor voice or whatever, you tell, you tell a student who's using a device the exact same thing. You know, and, and something that I struggle with is I have a firm belief um, that a student who stims on an iPad, if they were fully verbal, they would just be, they would be scripting and stimming verbally. Um, yes. So this is something that I think it's important to that people understand that they're just using that as a different way to do it. But if they were verbal, they would still be scripting and they would still be stimming over and over. This is just how they're doing it. Yeah, totally. And I'll throw another strategy out there is that this is kind of a long game strategy, but it's something that you, it's a behavior you want to teach. So, but you teach them not to do that, you know? And so uh, like a social situation story where you read stories over and over about the appropriate way to use your device and how I use my words and and you read that over and over again is is teaching them how to use the device as opposed to just taking it away. 
Yeah, no, I want to add on to that. One of the very smart special educators I work with has done a lot of social stories with kids like that about wait time mm -hmm. and in the communication and sort of just not pressing a bunch of buttons, but, you know, oh, you need to wait and hear what I'm saying and think for a second. And then you need to, you know, you need to have calm hands. It's been very, very, very successful with a couple of students. It's been impressive to see. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. All right. I think there's two more principles here and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Is that sure. sure. One is um, repetition with moderate differences is important to avoid habituation. Right. And so this, I think is something that um, came up with uh, in the 2016 agreements and we uh, wordsmithed this a little bit. We edited it, uh, refined it um, and, and just really felt like, um, so that students understand uh, and can generalize a term, you can't use it the same way all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to use it with some slight differences so that students can recognize the different, different ways a word can be used. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. All right. And then the last one uh, is motor planning is an important consideration of an organizational structure of an AAC system. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in one more time, Sean, and then see if you want to add in. I, yeah. This is fascinating to me because, Chris, you and I had um, such strong conversations about this back and forth. I mean, um, uh, Words for Life uh, is such a strong motor planning uh, uh, app, and I had a conversation today about it mm -hmm. and the fact that they have their 84 buttons and they don't move them. But at the same time, in the two years since that you and I had those conversations, both ProLoco to Go and TouchChat, um, have modified their system to increase the fact that their buttons move less when you increase the grid size, mm -hmm. uh, which are huge changes, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to, you know, if you go from a 24 uh, button array to a 36 uh, or 25 to 36 maybe or something like that, then they're gonna to try to keep things in the same quadrant that they were in and still expand them so that it's not as much relearning. Now, the, I, I do think that um, it's interesting, that's the conversation I had today with my executive director of student support. You know, there are no agreements about this. There are, two, there are some definite thoughts about, okay, when we have a, a smaller vocab, we're gonna have a smaller array, and then we're gonna grow that array and we're going to try to keep things in the same region versus we're going to have that array and we're going to hide things. So everything's always in the same place. Mm -hmm. At the same point, everyone recognizes that that automaticity is important. Sean, do you have any thoughts? Well, I obviously agree with this. This is something that's important to me and that I use in all my explanations of AC apps and uh, explaining molder planning and the importance of molder planning. And um, it's something still like I've run into quite a few, especially SLPs that have a hard time wrapping their head around it. That, um, you know, you're not necessarily teaching language. A lot of them believe that you're teaching the molder plan. And so this is something that I get into a lot of conversations about um, with this one, even though I obviously believe that molder planning is very important. And I think it's, uh, we really have to focus on it a lot. I do run into a lot of resistance with this. You do? In what way? Um, just the language, the language part with people thinking, well, you're not necessarily teaching, it doesn't feel like you're teaching language. You're not teaching semantics. You're not teaching how, you know, different words mean different things. Um, and I try and explain it the best I can. Um, but there are other people, I'll explain to other people, and it's 
they seem to really take it. I find I have the most issue explaining this to SLPs versus like teachers and parents. Right. I, I think if you're not an SLP, you can relate to it a little bit easier in some ways. You, you see the more of the forest than the trees in some ways um, because you recognize, you know, playing a musical instrument, driving a car, reading a book, all of these things have motor planning in them that become automatic that allow you to function, uh, focus on the content. Do you have any ideas, either of you, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but uh, of how to keep the conversation going on a, on a more global level? I do think that a national or an international body needs to take it up, but it would be great if they would at least, and have some people put together, hey, here's, here's some agreements we think that are, are important, you know, it, and it, it, it almost needs to be a, a state of the union uh, address for uh, AAC. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of research being done. There's a lot of talk. Um, and honestly, um, the people who are teaching communication on a day-to-day -day basis in small schools throughout the world uh, aren't getting it all. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of um, poor practice being done. And, uh, and I think if, if we started top-down, we could do a better job of, of guiding people. Um, and again, that um, UNC Chapel Group has a whole bunch of online trainings. You know, it's just, that's just core. Um, but they talk about modeling. And so, you know, that some of these resources are starting to come out that are research-based. It would be great if we could get some, a broader agreement uh, document that is research-based and vetted and agreed to by a, a larger governing body. Those are really good points that Chris brought up online, which I think makes the world a much smaller place and gives us the ability to kind of have these discussions, right? So just kind of at the front, front line levels with teachers and therapists and, and parents all over the world, you know, using things like I know you guys are talking with tech, have a Facebook group, you know, having conversations there, um, having conversations on the AT chat, Twitter, things like that gives a way for everyone to kind of put their input on it on a more um, front line level. I, I love all of these ideas. Guys, thank you so much for taking your, your time to come and be on Talking With Tech and talk about these agreements and talk about your experiences. Thanks thank a lot. You. Thanks very much. Well, thank you so much to Sean and Chris for joining us. Uh, I think that was a really uh, fantastic conversation. And thanks, of course, to Chris Begay for making it happen. Um, we'd like to hear from you too, right? Yeah, so I feel like we talked about a lot of really great stuff today, and I'm just curious if we missed anything that's really glaring and important. So go to our Facebook group. You can just search Talking With Tech, and we'll pop up um, and leave. Maybe we'll, we'll have a photo so we can have some comments on it uh, for the when we post this episode. And just tell us what you think, because I, I know for a fact we've missed a lot of things, so we would love to hear from you. You know what? I'd be really curious to see what people's, their five things would be. What would their yes. top five list be? And then we can compare and contrast them. That would be awesome. Well, once again, for Talking With Tech, this is Lucas Stuber, joined by Rachel Madel and Chris Begay. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>